Well, good morning to this Easter Sunday morning, and just glad to be able to gather together in the way that we are, uh, to be able to celebrate this amazing weekend, especially this day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of that significance that it carries, uh, not just for believers, but carries for the whole world. And uh, this morning, as we open up our Bibles, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 8, and then considering some other texts, as you usually do, uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New, as we just meditate upon what has taken place uh, at the Garden Tomb uh, on that first Easter morning. I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer before we open God's Word and just ask the Holy Spirit to uh, assist us in our understanding. Father God, we thank you that uh, you are good to us, that you have uh, laid down this plan of salvation, that you have laid down this plan of rescuing, and that this morning, uh, of all mornings throughout the year, throughout the calendar, uh, we recognize uh, the power of who you are and the goodness and the grace that you have towards your creation. And so this morning, I just pray again, as we open up your word, that you will, by your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, give us insight, most importantly, transform us so that our hearts would be moved by your compassion and your love towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning, I'm just going to go straight to the text and then begin to unpack it after we have it sort of firmly in our mind. And uh, as I said, we're continuing in our series on Matthew, and so we're taking the resurrection account from Matthew this morning. And it's in Matthew 28, verses 1 to 8, that I am reading, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or follow along on the screen. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, as we consider this text, there are a lot of amazing things going on. I mean, if you were scripting the ultimate moment of human history, this definitely has all of the right elements. There are innocent bystanders who can marvel at what is taking place and then go and talk excitedly afterwards to it, to news reporters. And then there's a powerful angelic being who is flying down out of heaven and feats of superhuman strength. There is an earthquake. There are crazy lightning effects and flashy yet understated clothing. The bad guys in the plot are all collapsing all over the place in fear. And this is summer blockbuster material. Uh, it's in impressive. But then the women right in the midst of it, facing it all with wonder, are told not to be afraid. Because look, 
Nothing unusual is going on here, just that Jesus has risen from the dead. Like what? Of all the things that are going on here, with everything else that's going on, you can almost miss the punchline. It isn't the flying angel with a face like lightning. It isn't the gigantic stone that is grinding off to one side. It isn't the earthquake or the fainting guards that are the main event here. It isn't all the things that are happening and that are here in the text. What is most important is who isn't there, what is absent. There is no body in the tomb. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. He is not here. In the midst of all this stuff that's going on, angels, stones, guards, earthquakes, lightning, whatever, that's not the punchline. It's what isn't there, the body of Jesus. Now, if there's anything about this world we find ourselves in that is final and terminal and irreversible, it is death. Some people who are listening now and others who listen later may even now be considering their own death. Certainly, with COVID-19, literally, in the current cultural air, I can't imagine that there are too many who have not been following the death tolls on the news and wondering who in their family it may affect, or even themselves. There is no medical solution to death. You can freeze your head like Walt Disney if you like. You can try and upload your consciousness to a some sort of supercomputer. You can eat a keto diet, a paleo diet, a vegan diet. You can soak in a tub of essential oils if you like. And if that's how you take good care of the body that God has given you, more power to you. But the statistics remain the same. One out of one people die. From the greatest to the least, from the strongest to the weakest, death is the curse that was brought upon us by our sin. Facing death, both physical and spiritual, is the condition we find ourselves in. No one escapes death, not one single person ever. Well, wait. Actually, there is one person that's the point of what Matthew is telling us here. God, it seems, has chosen this particular reality of our existence, death, to step into with one exception, and we are confronted from cover to cover in the whole testimony of the Bible with this strange and compelling notion of resurrection. You cannot read the Bible and escape that this is the primary topic, resurrection. Not the primary subject, that's Jesus, but the primary topic is resurrection. That there may be power over this ultimate enemy is what the Bible tells us. That it hints at tantalizingly and then confirms resoundingly. This is without a doubt the climax of the Gospel of Matthew. It is the ultimate message of the whole Bible. But why did Christ have to die and why is his resurrection in a book that is filled with miracles from front to back why is this particular miracle so important to everyone who hears about it? Why are they reacting so astonishingly and so incredibly to this miracle? To understand the Bible's preoccupation with the resurrection in the simplest, most basic way, we go back, as we usually do, to Genesis. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, sets the stage for why the Bible talks about resurrection 
and why resurrection is the center of the Christian faith. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. To put the Genesis account very simply, God created God breathed life into his creation. God gave purpose to his creation. And God gave mankind almost unlimited freedom to enjoy his creation. There was only one boundary, so to speak, on the field that mankind was given to play on. Imagine a soccer field with only one boundary line or a playground or a garden or your favorite place and pastime on earth. Whatever helps you, just imagine that place, that area that God has given and it only has one boundary line. And God says you can play any game, you can enjoy every activity as far and as wide as you want to play it. On that side of the boundary line, it goes off in every direction. You can do as you please. There are no boundaries over there. And it is a great place to play and enjoy. Just don't cross the one boundary line. And the boundary line was simple. Don't try to be God. That was the boundary. I'm God. You're not God. Don't try to make yourself God. And I think we know how well we didn't do at staying on side. We just couldn't help ourselves from wondering if maybe we should be God instead of God being God, which is basically what every human contemplates at some point in their life and how most humans live. We are our own God. We worship and serve ourselves. We forgive our own sins and we judge the sins of others. We sacrifice all sorts of things on the altar of our pleasure. And the condition of the world is evident of what petty and poor gods we are when we try to be God. When we try to play on his side of the boundary instead of ours. That's what's going on in Genesis, but that actually isn't the main point here. It is and it isn't. The main point is that we have created for ourselves a problem out of this. God said, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that you set yourself up as gods, you will cut yourself off from life. The day you cross that boundary, you who I did not intend to die, who I did not create to die, will die. You'll be cut off physically and spiritually from me. You will do it yourself. I will, in fact, come looking for you in the garden, and you will hide from me. And then the rest of the Bible is a description of God putting a resurrection plan in place to bring his dead people back to life. As we've been seeing over and over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, God has been foreshadowing. He has been foretelling. He has been prefiguring. He has been preparing the world for the arrival of this moment of the empty tomb. We can see this as we go through the Old Testament. Isaac is bound and laying on an altar as good as dead, and God resurrects the son of promise by providing a ram in his place. Hebrews eleven nineteen says of this moment that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, even here early on in the covenant with Abraham, God was saying, I am going to resurrect. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob each had barren wives. Before Rachel was pregnant, she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I shall die, we read in Genesis 30, verse 1. Barrenness was the death of the family line. And the reversal of barrenness was a picture of resurrection from the dead. In Romans 4, 19, Paul says, speaking to this moment that Abraham and Sarah had of barrenness, Abraham's considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so in all of these cases of barrenness, they considered themselves dead, either by the barrenness or by their age or whatever they figured this was it. And so when God gives a child into this barren family line, it is a resurrection of the family. Or we see Joseph, the favored son, he's thrown down into a pit by murderous brothers. He's considered dead by his father and by his family for nearly 20 years until one day they discover that he is alive and not only alive, he is the instrument of their salvation and not only their salvation from death, but the salvation of all the surrounding nations from the famine as Joseph opens up the storehouses and rescues the people. Jonah is inside the belly of a fish for three days and then resurrected via regurgitation onto the beach. Jesus even says of himself that he will give the people the sign of Jonah for his own resurrection. The whole nation of Israel is pictured as being resurrected over and over and over again, most strikingly by Ezekiel in chapter 37. I almost did the whole sermon just on Ezekiel, and we are going to come back to it on another Sunday, though. But just briefly, we have to look at Ezekiel's vision given by God of God as a resurrecting God. He is a God with resurrection power, and resurrection is his purpose. Let's just dip into the word of God here in Ezekiel 37, 1 to 6, and see what his prophet has to say to us. Ezekiel 37 says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the vision continues from there with Ezekiel prophesying as the Lord commands over the dry bones. And they indeed do come to life just as God says that they will by the power of his spoken word, which means so much in and of itself. But we don't have time for that. And then he explains the first meaning of this prophecy. God explains to Ezekiel. 
He says in verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they, Israel, say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. God says these bones are Israel. And this is the situation that Israel is in right now. They have lost hope. They are in despair. They are cut off. They are as good as dead. Ezekiel's prophesying at a time when most of the nation of Israel has been carried off into captivity in Babylon. And at this particular point in their history and of their captivity, they have just learned that finally the city of Jerusalem that has been under siege for a long time now, their last bastion, their last outpost, has fallen. The capital city is gone. The temple is gone. The king is gone. The nation is dead. There is no army anymore. It is an army of dead, dry, bleached bones. You see, nations that are this completely destroyed don't come back. Is the Persian Empire still kicking around today? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Jebusites? You run into any of those empires today? No, destroyed kingdoms don't come back. But God says to Ezekiel, I am a God of resurrection. He says, you people will be my people again. You will restore the city and you will restore the temple. Did that prophecy come true? Written as it was at the lowest point of Israel's history with no hope of any of that coming true. In captivity, no king, no city, no temple, no army. Yeah, it did. You can read about the restoration of Israel in Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets that follow and keep reading through the rest of the Old Testament as God restores Israel. God brings his people back to life. Hosea even spurs on his fellow Israelites at the time, saying later on during the restoration in Hosea 6, 1-2, listen to how Hosea understands this from God. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. God is a resurrecting God. The nation of Israel is still right there in their land on the map as a coherent nation today. Century after century, they have been smitten and smitten and smitten. And all of their enemies wonder, why will they not die? How many times do we have to put Israel in the grave until they stay there? They will not stay. But if you keep reading through to the end of the prophets in Malachi, we see that although God continually brings his people back from their death and restores them in their land, his revivals by that method are temporary. The nation of Israel goes after other gods again and again, and we go after other gods again and again. We need more than a temporary revival. We need a final and permanent resurrection. All of these pictures and prefigurings and foreshadows in the Old Testament have all been pointing us towards this one moment in history that Matthew captures for us in another garden. Far removed from the first garden where humanity chose death, we find a garden tomb, a garden grave where Jesus returns us to life. He is not here. 
for he is risen, as he said. He is not here. We have not escaped from our original problem of death. We ate of the tree. We will surely die physically and spiritually. It is death that must be defeated. Death is the ultimate enemy. Jesus cannot remain in the grave. Jesus must have victory over the curse of death so that we can live. The Apostle Paul underlines the significance of what Matthew so quietly states. So contrasts in the absence of what everything is going on. Matthew simply highlights by him not being there. The Apostle Paul underlines the significance of that. Why the disciples and the guards and the Pharisees and the whole city of Jerusalem is in such an uproar. Why this one particular miracle is so shocking compared to all the other miracles that have taken place throughout the Bible. It's not just that Jesus has come back to life. Lazarus did that. Others have done that. God's performed that kind of temporary Miracle before, bringing someone back to life only to have them die again, like the nation of Israel. It's because Jesus has been resurrected into a new kind of life, a new kind of life that makes way for us. It's the final resurrection in many senses, but in another sense, it's the first resurrection. Let's read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-four to 57. Paul writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has given us victory over the power of death. Death has been put to death. And earlier in the same chapter, Paul explains what this means for us. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits." Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits, meaning that there are other fruit to follow. In verse 23, each in its order, Jesus first, then later those who belong to Jesus. See, this miracle is different. Easter means something different than anything that has happened before. The the point that Matthew is making, the argument that Paul is underlining is not simply that we should consider Easter as some sort of symbol of new life, as flowers bloom and as bunnies have babies, that there is somehow a cycle of new life that emerges, and that's why we celebrate Easter. That is weak sauce. There were literally scores upon scores of fertility religions that have held out that message, and all of those fertility religions have died off like so much withered grass. Neither Matthew nor Paul are even making the argument that people will live on in some sort of spiritual sense in the afterlife. Uh, Neither Matthew nor Paul are making the argument that death is not the end. 
Almost everyone in their world already believed that, not just the Jews, but the Greeks and the Romans and the Ethiopians and the Gauls. The persistence of the soul after death in some form was already widely believed. They're not making any argument that this is anything new or special in terms of life after death. The immortality of the soul was common knowledge to most of the world in almost all the religions. That kind of spiritual resurrection was nothing to get excited about. That wasn't going to upset the Pharisees. That wasn't going to upset the city of Jerusalem. No, what makes this resurrection different, what makes Easter the pinnacle of human history, is that Jesus Christ is the death-defeating, relationship-restoring, promise-sealing defeat of death that human, humanity has needed since our first rebellion against God. This is the first and the final death that defeats death and the resurrection that proves death is defeated. He is not here, for he is risen. He is risen indeed. The angel rolled the stone away, not so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. He walked right through that stone in the new resurrection body that is unlike any other body that has been resurrected before, that will someday be ours, those who belong to him. The angel rolled the stone away so that the women could come and the disciples could come and they could approach and they could see that the grave was empty, that the victory long promised had finally been won, that the way had been made for us to live as God intended us to live eternally in resurrection bodies glorified with him. Don't miss the significance of Easter of what God has done to rescue his people, not rescue a nation temporarily, not simply to restore new life to the world at springtime, not simply to affirm that we are spiritual creatures with an eternal destiny. All of that was known. All of that merely pointed to what Jesus did this first Easter weekend. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Who what? What sort of God? God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and our hope are in God because he raised Jesus from the dead. You cannot have hope without the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we just... Thank you once again for your word. Thank you for this Easter moment, this Easter weekend, this time that we set aside to remember that you are a resurrection God. You have had this plan since the moment we stepped across the boundary, since the moment of our first rebellion, since the moment that we fell into death. 
you have been planning this resurrection reality. And we just give you thanks this morning that those who turn to Christ, who listen to the call as he comes to walk with us, as he brings the kingdom near to hand, those who turn to Christ and who belong to him live in this resurrection reality. Father God, if there are any within the sound of your word, within the reach of your gospel, that hear this message, I pray by the Holy Spirit that they would look upon Jesus and live. It's all that's required. This gift is free for any who would turn, lay down their rebellion, put down their sword, admit that they are not making it on their own, that they need you to restore them to life and to begin that resurrection life today. Pray that they would just ask Jesus for that resurrection life even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.